Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week we're talking about PCR tests and whether there's any truth to the conspiracy theories that say they were pretty useless after all. As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us using the hashtag Medical Minefield or email us at health at mailonsunday.co.uk. Eve, it's an an interesting question, isn't it? Because back in early 2020, when the pandemic hit, you couldn't get a test, could you? No, they were nowhere. I had a friend who had terrible COVID-like symptoms. I mean, every COVID symptom going in was couldn't breathe practically. And the ambulance had to come out twice to, to check her blood oxygen levels. But at no point was she ever tested because testing was reserved only for people who went into hospital. And then within a year, it was tests were everywhere. Well, exactly. And they were a key part of our response to the pandemic, especially as things started to get back to normal. You know, we were told to test them before we brushed our teeth, test, test before you go to the office, test before you go everywhere. And of course, there was, you know, it's the the figure, the big figure that everyone has been obsessed with for, you know, so long, the rising and falling case numbers linked to these positive tests. But, you know, the conspiracy theorists claim that the tests were too sensitive, that they were picking up people who were not infectious. And essentially, the the whole pandemic has been sexed up, that in fact, COVID wasn't as big a problem. And, you know, we hear these things all the time. And the typical response in the science community is often to say, no, it's not true. It's not true at all. Mm. But... In fact, there is some truth to these things. Mm. Well, what I find really interesting is when you when you present this argument to some scientists, they say, well, PCR tests were the best that we had. And I'm, I don't really buy that argument. And that makes me think that there's more to it, that, you know, why weren't they good then? Why aren't scientists just straight away kind of rebutting these claims by saying, well, no, actually, they were effective because... Well, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, and it's worth looking at what wasn't perfect, I suppose, so you could perhaps improve things mm. for the next time. For the next pandemic. For the next pandemic. That'll keep us busy, won't it? Well, look, before we go on, let's let's speak to Joe McFarlane, our star reporter, who has been tracking this uh, interesting question over the last couple of weeks. Joe, thanks for joining us. We're talking today about your investigations into PCR testing. What have you discovered? Well, it's fascinating. I think we have all looked at some of the problems that have emerged throughout the COVID pandemic, but very little attention has been drawn to PCR testing. Uh, We heard lots of, really, I suppose they've been banded about as myths by COVID sceptics that PCR tests pick up people who are no longer infectious, they produce lots of false positives and we can't rely on the daily totals that are being published by the government. And this has largely been dismissed as false and and overstated, but perhaps it's now time to look at it in a little bit more detail. And actually, it's not quite as false as you might expect. When you say not quite as false, what well, I mean, that sounds slightly couched. <laughs> you, you know, I was saying to Eve earlier that last time I heard this argument, it was being yelled out of a megaphone at Kensington Tube Station with someone saying that the figures were a lie, that people were had colds and were being diagnosed with COVID and, and that kind of thing. But that's not what we're saying, is it? 
That's not what we're saying. And actually, the reason I'm cautious is because it is a complex picture. The reality is that the PCR test is a very good test and it's the best test we've got. We should say that from the start. But what we do know is that it does pick up fragments of virus which are no longer infectious. So they would no longer infect another person. So in some cases, people are testing positive, even though they're no longer contagious. They might have picked up the virus, shrugged it off, but they're still testing positive for it. It's a very, very sensitive test. Now, there are people that argue that that's incredibly important because a test is only as good as the sample that you put in it. So if you were to give yourself three nose swabs, for example, for a PCR test, two of them might come back positive, one might come back negative. That's just a reality. Is that statistically? So it's right two thirds of the time? No, that's just an example. What, what I'm trying to say really is that you can't always guarantee you'll get lots of what's called viral RNA, which is what exists in your nose, on the swab at any, good, at any given time. Um, you know, you, you get what you get. But there, there must be, you know, I mean, these things have been studied, you know, PCR testing wasn't invented for COVID. It's, it's a standard test. So, you know, they must know how many false positives and false negatives generally you'd get. Well, the fact is it's only been used for respiratory viruses since very recently. Previously in the past, it's been used to diagnose things like HIV and hepatitis and DNA, you know, the presence of DNA at a crime scene, for example. So all you need in those cases is a simple is it there or is it not? For respiratory viruses, it picks up fragments of dead virus as well as viruses which are still contagious. And in COVID, it's particularly important to know, of course, if you are contagious or not. But PCR is not a test of infectiousness. It can just tell you whether the virus in its RNA form, which is a sort of you know, fraction of the genome, is there or not. That's wild, because of course, until about three months ago, if you had COVID symptoms, you had to have, by law, I believe, a PCR test, didn't you? That's right. And yet, you know, this test could have could really have been flagging up many cases in which, you know, someone was no longer infectious or... But I suppose you'd have had to have had symptoms, I guess, or unless you were having travel testing. Mm. I mean, yes, what, what a lot of the experts are arguing now is that we divorced symptoms from COVID tests. All we know when we get the test result is whether someone tests positive or not. That's not sort of correlated against what mm. particular symptoms yeah. that person had. You know, it really takes it away from the clinical setting where you would be mm. using it to diagnose a case, you know, where you would use a, the, the results of a test like PCR and also look at the symptoms that person had. To confirm. Yes, exactly. It's like it's confirmatory rather yeah. than an actual diagnosis. So the picture is a bit muddied. What also makes it even less clear is the fact that from the beginning of 2021, we started ruling out testing largely to private laboratories. Previously, it was under the government's lighthouse labs. In the main, they were processing about 90% of all the COVID tests up until the late part of 2020, early part of 2021. And when they were doing it, it was largely standardised in terms of the testing kit that was being used to process the PCR tests and the number of cycles that these tests were put through. Now, the cycles is a really crucial part of this, some people say. When you say cycles, what do you mean? Again, it's slightly complicated to explain, but <laughs> in, or in order to pick up the fragments of COVID that exist in your nose that are on the sample that you've swabbed, 
it has to be amplified. So they dilute it with a lot of um, different chemical agents and then they put it in a big PCR processing machine which basically puts it through certain cycles of different temperatures and by doing that they amplify how much of the material that actually exists so it can actually be picked up. Now some machines run those at quite low amounts of cycles so it only picks up a lot of material that's already there but if you run it at more cycles then you pick up even smaller amounts of material which have to be amplified much, much, much more to be picked up in the first place. So so basically you're saying essentially they made the test too sensitive almost? Some people argue that it's too sensitive. There's not a consensus across the scientific divide on this. It's very polarised. Some people say far too sensitive and you're picking up cases that aren't infectious any longer. Other people say it's really important that you pick up the wide range to make sure you pick up those weak positives. Well, Joe, I think that explains quite a lot of this um, very complicated scenario quite clearly. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope so. It's not an easy thing to explain. I suppose overall the idea is that by creating a false sense of the infection rate, by showing this astronomically sky-high figure for COVID infections, you scare people. And that's one of the big conspiracy theory criticisms, isn't it? That it was a form of government control, they were trying to scare us into submission. And again, there is some truth to that. Clearly, there was an intention at some point to use, you know, the tool of making COVID as scary as possible to make sure people followed the rules. Mm, I think scientists have acknowledged that now, haven't they? I mean, we saw Professor Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance stand there at that podium and present these very doom-laden graphs showing this huge curve. And it was always the infection rate that really informed every other measure that they then went on to enforce. You know, obviously, at the start of the pandemic, when there was, like Joe said, no vaccination, you needed to know that figure almost because you then could see how the hospitalizations and deaths would follow. But post-vaccination, because those things became so much less connected, I can I can see why it's it's almost irrelevant to, to know about infections, isn't it? Well, I think it's about time we spoke to a scientist who can explain a little more about this view. She says that we should have stopped using PCR tests many, many months before we actually did. Joining us now is Alison Pollock, who is a consultant in public health medicine at the University of Newcastle. Alison, there seems to be some growing criticism of the PCR test among scientists. They say that they were too sensitive and they picked up lots of infection that never really would have gone on to infect anyone else. What do you think about that view? So testing has its place. The real problem began when the government decided to uncouple testing from a clinical diagnosis and clinical symptoms. So... One of the problems with PCR testing is that there are many, many laboratories producing PCR tests, but there's a lack of good standardization for these PCR tests. What, what do you mean when you say lack of good standardization? Does that mean that different labs were processing them differently? Yes, different labs are processing them differently. You're getting different standards to a different standard, and some of the PCR tests may be more sensitive than others. Now, I think it's really important to understand that the PCR test does not necessarily pick up active infection. It's not a test of infectiousness, so it doesn't tell you about whether people are transmitting or not, nor does it necessarily tell you whether they have live infection. 
And that really all depends on the threshold of the test, how sensitive that test is. And what we do know about PCR tests is that they can test positives even when people have passed their infection for up to 90 days. So it may just pick up viral debris of viral fragments that are hanging around. So this has been a real issue from the start. Now, all tests do harm. Some of the two big harms are when you get a false negative or a false positive. And that's why it's testing really is most useful when it's being done as part of a clinical diagnosis or if it's being done as part of a research study. So this is the big issue with PCR tests, but it's not just PCR tests that have been a problem. It's the lateral flow tests that have been used for mass testing. Mm. What's the problem with lateral flow testing? Well, you have the exact same problem, but what the government did with lateral flow testing is it was rolling it out to the general population who were healthy to try and pick up people who might have infection. But the problem is when you're doing mass testing like this, and the government wanted to do the population twice a week, the whole population twice a week, if you remember, is that the problem with um, the test is it very much depends on who's doing the test, how accurate it is. And again, you get the whole issue of false positives and false negatives. But when you're testing a healthy population, it's actually something called screening. You're screening the healthy population. And in fact, the government had put in place many years ago a national UK screening committee, which was put in place in order to evaluate tests before you roll out them out to the population. And the big problem with mass testing using lateral flow tests is that the government had never done any careful evaluations before they rolled them out and before they spent billions of pounds. And you have a similar problem with lateral flow tests. It's like a toss of coin. It depends on the observer. You have a 50-50 chance of it being positive or negative. And the other big issue about lateral flow tests is, again, you get false positives and you get false negatives, but they're not a green light test. And they've been used as a green light test, green for go, i.e. if you have a negative test and you're safe to go in the community. Of course, that's not the case. People may be infectious and have infection, but it's simply not showing up on the lateral flow test for a number of reasons. It may be the test itself or it may be the person doing the test hasn't actually done it accurately or very well. Just to go back to PCR testing and, and I guess testing as a, as a whole. So theoretically, and this is something that's been floated by conspiracy theorists, you could say a common or garden cold and have come into contact you know, at some point way before with COVID and have a little bit of it in your system and seek out a test, you know, for your normal cold symptoms, test positive for COVID, even though it's not really COVID, that, that's actually possible. Yes, it is possible. You may have had the infection and that bit of viral fragment may be hanging around your body for up to 90 days. And if the PCR test is very sensitive, it will be picking up old infection. And that's one of the big issues when you test everybody going into hospitals. You'll be testing people who not only have COVID, but people who have had COVID in the past or where it's not the made presenting complaint. What about if you have some viral RNA in your nose that the PCR test picks up, but you're not particularly ill, and then you go on to develop further symptoms and then test positive on a lateral flow? Are the PCR tests also picking up 
people before they become infectious and how does that work? One of the ideas behind the testing originally with PCRs was that you would also use them for asymptomatic people. So they were being used very early on for healthcare workers. But there you've got the problem is that you're not actually doing enough follow-up. So you should be doing this as part of a careful study to say how successful are they at picking up people early and do they prevent transmission? Because if you remain asymptomatic, we know you're far less likely to be transmitting than if you are symptomatic. So again, it's really important to do the costs and the benefits and the harms before you roll out mass testing to the general population or testing. Wait a minute. The government adverts say that you can give someone COVID even if you have no symptoms. they, They go on and on about that. Well, that looks to be true that if you are asymptomatic, you may transmit, but your risk of transmitting is far, far less than if you are symptomatic. And now, of course, we're in a different stage of the pandemic where most people have either had the infection or they've had vaccination or a combination of both. So you've got a high degree of acquired immunity. So you're not seeing anything like the severity of death rates or hospitalizations or ITU admissions that we saw much earlier on when there was no immunity. Which is why we're not testing now. But, you know, this would be relevant because I suppose for the whole of 2021, we were testing like mad and had these sky high figures for COVID infections. Um, But in fact, you know, they they might not have been all that they seemed. And at the time, the majority of the population were at least doubly vaccinated and it was before Omicron. So two vaccines would be enough. Well, we may well have been seeing very sky high cases. But the question is, we were monitoring cases using the proper ONS infection survey. We did not need to do mass population testing, not least because it's very expensive and we had never shown that it has stopped transmission or prevented the spread of infection. The Public Accounts Committee came out with that last October. There have been several reports which have shown that in spite of the billions spent, mass testing has never been shown to stop transmission or prevent infection and there should have been careful evaluations before we did any mass testing. Well, Dr. Alison Pollock, that's been enlightening. Thank you so much for spending the time talking to us. Thank you. Well, Eve, I think that's probably why, you know, because I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, but what is the harm of, of, of all the testing? You know, I suppose if you catch every single case, you, you, uh, you know, who might or might not go on to give someone else COVID, then you, you contain the pandemic as much as possible. But, you know, A, Alison's saying we don't know whether testing actually did that. And B, I, I read that it's, I mean, how much was it? 13 billion, 14 billion? How much was spent on test and trace? I'm Googling right now. So, well, this is this time last year. 37 billion. How much? Over two years. And I'm guessing it's there's more what? added to that now, given that we're in 2022. I mean, what could you buy for 37 billion? <laughs> lots and lots of shoes and handbags. OK, well, there you go. You heard it here first. Eve, if she was given that budget, would buy shoes and handbags. Um, yes, I'm, I make very, uh, <laughs> very nonsensible decisions. That's the, definitely the scientific uh, decision. 
Would it have been more value to the pandemic than PCR testing? Who knows? Maybe it's a close call. It's a close call. Well, let's talk to a scientist who's a who's a fan of PCR testing. On the line now is Dr. Al Edwards, who is associate professor of pharmacy at the University of Reading. Dr. Edwards, thanks so much for finding some time. There seems to be a growing number of scientists who think that the PCR test was in fact oversensitive and diagnosing lots of people with COVID who wouldn't necessarily go on to pass it on to others. But you're less sympathetic to this view. Can you explain why you think this isn't the best way to view things? So it's one of these things where there's A and there's B, and it might seem obvious if you take A and then B, that you might get to see, but in fact, it doesn't work that way. So let me explain what I mean by that. So first of all, one of the great advantages of PCR type reaction is it's capable of detecting really tiny amounts of something like a coronavirus. So that's part A. It's a sensitive technique. That's, that's actually a really good thing. That's a strength of the technique. Part B is that after you've recovered from coronavirus infection, you can actually have virus detected quite a long time after you've been really ill. So you have the sort of coughs and sneezes and you're really ill for a few days. And then for actually several weeks after that, it will still be possible to test positive. But what that doesn't mean is that the technique is is wrong or is picking up lots of people needlessly. The real answer is we don't have any good way, a reliable way of telling whether somebody's likely to pass it on. So as a result, because the virus is very harmful, we have to treat everybody who's infected equally. Uh, And and so that's where some of this um, concern comes from. But isn't there a quite large risk of wrongly identifying lots of people who have infectious COVID, telling them to isolate, and then, you know, all of the harms that come with that, which we know now are very serious? So that's, of course, the case. But the reality is that I don't think that we picked up a large number of people who didn't need to isolate, first of all. I think, I think there isn't any evidence for that. And then the second point is that there isn't actually any reliable way of telling the difference between somebody who's been infected several weeks ago, has cleared the infection and got better and is no risk. You can't actually tell them apart from somebody who's only just got infected and over the next few days is actually going to be very, very infectious and spread it on to a lot of people. But at one point, not too long ago, I think about six months ago, services were grinding to a halt because we had hundreds and hundreds of thousands testing positive and isolating. And if if that was unnecessary, surely we need to find out now, we need to look back and find out whether we did the wrong thing and, and identified people unnecessarily. So let's be absolutely crystal clear. The reason why lots of people had to isolate is because an enormous number of people were infected. So it's not that those people were staying home unnecessarily. It's that they were staying home because they were potentially at risk of spreading a virus to other people. But the point is that they'd been exposed at some point, but it didn't tell us whether or not they were infectious. But there is no tool that can tell the difference between somebody who is infectious and not infectious. It's technologically not possible at the moment to make that distinction. You may as well have just said to what we said at the start of the whole pandemic, stay at home and, you know, make it legal requirement if you've got symptoms to stay at home. But I mean, what's the point of testing? So if you test positive by PCR, you are far, far, far more likely to pass it on than somebody else. So that's very, that's very clear. So it's better to be safe than sorry. How much more likely? Well, it, that's something that can't easily be calculated. But the likelihood is, if you test positive by PCR, that means you're definitely are currently infected or have recently been infected. So you're much more likely to spread it and pass it on. What we're trying to avoid is everybody staying at home. That's the, that's the 
that's the other extreme. As I understand it, lateral flow tests are extremely effective at picking up people who are in their infectious peak. So by that logic, you'd use a lateral flow test to make sure that, you know, people aren't going and passing the virus on to others. Which is what they eventually did, isn't it? So that's actually also not true. So lateral flow tests are much better at picking up people who are currently have a high level of virus. But the, the reciprocal of that, which is that if you're negative by lateral flow, means that you're not infectious, isn't actually true. That's never been demonstrated. There's an association. But it's a lot less likely. Well, it's very hard to tell how much less likely. Um, and there's lots and lots of reasons for that. Um, so there has been a lot of discussion about that, but that's not how diagnostic testing is operated based on very good evidence. But this isn't diagnostic testing, is it screening? So PCR tests were always used for diagnostic testing, not for screening. But the, the lateral flow was a screening test, wasn't it? It was indeed, yes, correct. I mean, everyone had to have it twice a, a week. Absolutely. So they're, they're different things used in different ways. But what you said was that you, you could use lateral flow tests to demonstrate that somebody was not infectious, and that's not correct. No, I said you can use it to demonstrate that someone is infectious. Um, if, if somebody tests positive by lateral flow, it's very likely that they're infected, and so then they should be isolating, yes. Hang on, you say that it's not a good test for saying if you're not infectious, and yet no. in order to come out of isolation, you have to test negative on a lateral flow. Oh, no, that's, that's not actually what the process was. The process was that if you're negative, then you could leave isolation early. And that was at a period where, as you said, so many people were isolating. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here. And the real answer is that there isn't a simple, clean, let's use this test or that test. It doesn't work that way. What about this idea that has been floated by some, that the cycle thresholds that were used to process the PCR tests were different depending on which labs they were processed by, and that, that meant that some people would be more likely to be positive than others? So it's a really complex area because you have different instruments and different products from different manufacturers with different cycle thresholds. You can, if you work really hard, sort of recalibrate these so that they all have a, a consistent threshold. But it's a distraction because if you detect the virus in somebody, that means that they have or are infected. And, and that's all a PCR test can do is to say, this is person has virus present. Regardless of the cycle threshold. Yes, absolutely. Because all diagnostic testing services have to have careful checks and measures to make sure they don't pick up people who are negative accidentally. So, so what, you, what you're really arguing about in terms of cycle thresholds is that going back to this point about whether PCR can tell the difference between somebody who's infectious as opposed to infected, and that's not actually the purpose of those tests. The purpose of those tests is to detect virus in a swab. Thank you so much, Dr. Al Edwards. It was great to chat, and um, thank you for explaining. No problem. Hi. Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. Ultimately, I think, you know, the more that we can look back on some of these issues and assess them brutally the better because i think there's a danger that we just accept that you know oh you know it wasn't perfect but it was all we had at the time etc etc and i don't think that's good enough i think that we need to be able to now look back and do an autopsy and there must be some big brains that can do some better number crunching 
considering that we spent 37 billion on this that can say how worth it was it picking up all these tests especially now given that we are faced with you know an extremely expensive situation as a result of all of the pandemic controlling measures that has led to huge harms you know both physically and mentally for the population of this country as well as the bank balance yeah, I mean, you know, this is a debt generations can be paying back for, you know, forever and ever. I also really feel with things like this that keep coming up, whether it's with, you know, from conspiracy theorists or popular bloggers or someone who thinks they know a little bit about something. It's really important that journalists like us are able to understand what the top people are saying about it so that we can argue against the conspiracy theorists and we know what the truth is. But, you know, we use the term conspiracy theory almost flippantly Mm. here. What we're trying to discover is whether there's truth to the concerns that people have. Mm. And there is also there is a danger, isn't there, of of dismissing people's concerns. And I think that that has been very corrosive throughout the pandemic, that people who have perhaps non-mainstream views or criticisms or, you know, they've been effectively sidelined if they are top scientists for instance i can think of a few who've perhaps gone against the grain and found themselves out in the cold and okay i understand why rallying together and all singing for the same hymn sheet is important to an extent but again now that we have the whole thing in our rearview mirror perhaps we can say actually there was weight to these concerns and next week we're going to look at a different set of concerns. The COVID death rate may have been trumped up, basically. And it was something that was mentioned time and again, that you could be run over by a bus and have at some point tested positive for COVID in the last 28 days, and still you'd be counted as a COVID death. This whole died with COVID, died of COVID. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I still hear occasionally readers or some people that I speak to on the phone, I'll mention just flippantly someone uh, had COVID and died and I'll be asked, was that with COVID or of COVID? I always think that's interesting. Yeah. And, and similarly, there was a big problem with people having COVID put on their death certificate. So the other way that death figures were gathered is that they had to put on their death certificate. But again, you know, these were people on their last legs. And, you know, did they die of old age, all sorts of other things with COVID as well? Or, you know, did they have, you know, terminal cancer and, you know, heart disease and et cetera, et cetera, and then have COVID as well? You know, why were we counting that as a COVID death? I think the main thing that strikes me, certainly with this conversation about testing, is just how much the main goal of the response to what's going on currently with COVID has changed. That At the very beginning and throughout 2020, you know, no one would have even questioned the need for testing because the priority was making sure we contain this as much as possible, save as many lives as possible, and the smallest risk that somebody might have a tiny fragment of DNA in their nose, you know, was panic stations. It was, we've got to make sure this person is trapped in a room and doesn't go near anyone. Whereas now we're in a completely different place. We have a very effective vaccine. People aren't dying really anymore. My point isn't to incriminate or recriminate or whatever the right word is. I'm not trying to find a grand conspiracy because I don't believe there has been one. However, can we not learn from our mistakes and can we not say actually there is truth to this concern and we should have done better next time we will and with that that is all we've got time for this week
You'll find all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday. And just to remind you, if you want to get in touch with a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefields, tweet us using the hashtag Medical Minefields or email us at health at mailonsunday.co.uk. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefields next week and we'll see you then. Goodbye.